We left off. Fire sermon, the Buddha's fire sermon. All the senses were to some degree <clears throat> aflame. Senses and the objects of the world, depending on the degree to which <clears throat> they were acceptable or unacceptable to the self. And we saw that the nose could be a place where burning happens. Smells that were unacceptable, painful, or wonderful. Perfume, as depicted in the TV ads, which drive people wild out of their minds. We never see the end of that. We see the first phase of it where the perfume goes on and then someone is just driven madly, insanely, uh, desirous. (laughs) Or the smell. I remember once being in an old age home and uh, the smell of urine permeated the place and even though people were trying to keep it clean, uh, there's almost no place to go where it wasn't the smell of urine. Very painful. And the eye was a pla- is a place where burning can happen when we see things that are disagreeable or very agreeable. Similarly with sounds, hearing very beautiful sounds or, or awful sounds, hearing sounds that tell us bad news, or beautiful sounds that we become infatuated with, attached to. Taste, probably a lot of opportunity to experience that since we eat about three times a day. Sometimes the taste being wonderful and delicious and other times not so. And the tongue, so the tongue is a place where... uh, burning can take place. The body, very obviously, in all kinds of uh, harsh ways or small ways. Uh, Some of you have done this practice. um, In some monasteries in Korea, they have a fair amount of what is called vowed sitting. That is, you take uh, a vow not to move for the length of a sitting, no matter what. And uh, I remember one time, it wasn't a mosquito, it was just an itch, but a very strong itch. And there you're sitting and you can't scratch. And your arm is trying to reach over there and you can just feel as if the mind is, in, is chaining it down. Uh, and then the mind starts, catches fire. Just do anything. Give, do anything, give away anything, just to be able to scratch. And you don't, because you made this vow. And then the mind goes to another level of paranoia and self-pity and outrage. Totally removed from the seriousness of what's happening, which is you have an itch. Perhaps there's a a moment, there was, but it took quite a while, of seeing that the the mind's interpretation of what was happening was so inflated, so beyond what was actually happening. Which was, there was an itch uh, which had happened countless times before and which had gone away countless times before. And of course, the the mind is a place where, where fire, where we can get burned fire can rage. And we'll spend 
a bit of time on the mind. What the uh, sutra was suggesting is, first of all, uh, to very briefly summarize it, it's not really the objects that the burning is about. It's the attachment. It's not the sense organs or the objects of the world that are the real problem, but the fact that attachment gets between the sense organs and the objects of the world. And so we either uh, want to varying degrees or we don't want to varying degrees or we're deluded, which is another form of burning in this sutra, being confused and perplexed. And this confusion being part of the greed and hatred as well, all the time, a prerequisite for it, a concomitant of it. And what was suggested is that through practice, through seeing, for example, impermanence, understanding the nature of things, we become less likely to attach to things, less likely to grab on unrealistically. As more and more we consciously study the way things are, not simply intellectually, but with our whole being, and it becomes increasingly difficult to grab on to things that we know um, have a life cycle but are not forever. And the awareness itself, the awareness uh, meeting the attachment and how the the problem, and this is the the core of Vipassana meditation, of being attentive to what's happening with wisdom in the moment that it's happening. And it's suggested that this practice takes us, if carried out thoroughly, to nirvana, which, again, to maintain the image of fire, which is a, a cooling out, cooling, uh, where hot things are made cool, sometimes used in the, sutra, in the sutras, uh, animals or wild animals are tamed or hot things are made cool. And again, as so often in some of this literature, uh, rather unassuming, that is, you think all this work just to get cool, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It may as well just let things be the way they are. Uh, A lot of the time, it's phrased negatively, so that, let's say, the total absence of any greed, hatred, or delusion, the total absence of attachment, of suffering, you have to... We can't... uh, the, The flip side of that is the most extraordinary fulfillment that we humans can have. And one uh, a set of notions that might help us as we go on tonight, if you recall, contact. The things of the world exist to us as we make contact with them. We make contact with them, uh, let's say, the eye, the visual object, assuming there's enough light, the eye is healthy enough. There's contact with uh, some form, And then there's feeling. The feelings are either pleasant to varying degrees or unpleasant to varying degrees or neutral. Okay, it's important to remember that because in a moment I'd like to get into the uh, notions of particularly the place where the fire rages the self, the mind, conscious, mind consciousness. Before we do, let me uh, clarify a term that was used a lot. Attachment was played off, rather non-attachment was played off against attachment. I think there's a lot of confusion about about that term, so let me just try to evoke a sense of what non-attachment means. Uh, Often when we hear non-attachment, people tend to get caught in the object I think that non-attachment means the removal of the object. But the essence of it, at least the way uh, we're using it tonight, has to do with the relationship that we have to objects, not to the object itself. 
for example. Okay, let's get to attachment. This cushion that I'm sitting on can cause suffering, tremendous amount of suffering. Okay. It's just a cushion. You know, it's a med- and it's very useful. It's uh, served me well for seven or eight days, whatever. And so let's say I get attached to it, which might mean that I would grasp the little handle that it has and I hold on to it. So far, it's not a problem. We're in a meditation hall and I'm holding on to it. Supposing I keep going, I leave the meditation hall and I go into the dining room and I'm eating some food and you see me eating there, holding on to my cushion. And then that's through and I have to wash my dishes all the while holding on to my cushion. It's late night sitting, it's time to go to sleep. I go to sleep. And if any of you would see me sleeping with my cushion, you might have some strange thoughts about whether I should be doing this kind of work or not. And in the morning, when I wake up, having showered, and of course this is now soggy, come into the first sitting and then sit on it. That's attachment. That's attachment. Okay. It doesn't mean that the cushion is bad. The cushion is just a cushion. Okay. So the cushion, if I put it back here again, okay. After years of meditation, I've learned how to do that. If I put it back there again, uh, and if I'm able to use it and not use it, use it when it's appropriate, let go of it when it's not appropriate, then I'm not attached to it. But it doesn't mean I have to... Now, I suffered when I was attached to it because all of the ridicule from everyone here at the center, <laughs> my own self-image, totally destroyed, never being asked back here to teach again, and so forth. Um, So, it's only a problem if there's that kind of holding on, which seems to be insensitive to the changing conditions. But if I can use the cushion, not use the cushion, it's not a problem. The cushion's okay. And it's the same, that kind of relationship. And especially since uh, it looks like all or most of us are, are not, and perhaps never will be monks or nuns, or living a very secluded, contemplative life exclusively, uh, those life, those in a way approaches uh, to spiritual uh, development, one of the things that they do is they have fewer objects and that can be tremendously helpful. But the problem isn't in the objects. That's one option. Let's say to uh, abstain from sex, have very little food, not handle money, and so forth. Have only uh, a certain set of clothes, all the same. Shave your head. Uh, All of that can help tremendously and within, it's organically powerful within a certain approach. But since we're not, we are very much handling money. We're in the world. We're involved in relationships. We have jobs, children, everything. So that uh, it seems to me that a teaching that we need is a teaching that really emphasizes that difference, makes us understand the difference between objects and our relationship to the objects. And often we may stop, we may let go of a lot of objects, not just the relationship to them, but just not want them, period. But the suffering comes from that relationship. Uh, small examples of, so we don't get confused. Um, let's say you were uh, really annoyed at some, one person was bothered by, perhaps more, but one person reported it in an interview. I'm not sure I'm accurately conveying the whole interview. I'll do my best because there have been a lot of interviews today. Uh, Annoyed with people who are coming late as being very inconsiderate, coming into the meditation hall late uh, as being inconsiderate and also uh, perhaps being working out some kind of authority problem. No one tells me to come on time. I'm my own man or my own woman. I come in at seven minutes late if I want to or 11 minutes late. What's this coming on time? At any rate, this person was, was aroused by that, annoyed, and in the hall sometimes annoyed, and then let go of it, saw, saw it, saw the holding on to it, and let go of it. And of course, there's a release, a relief. It's 
and freedom. We have to be careful that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because it could be very sensible and intelligent uh, in terms of our living together, organized social living, to have that discernment, that notion that, you know, it's really helpful if we all come together. We come at the same time. It's very disruptive since we're trying to settle down. And so the idea is not wrong. It doesn't have to be thrown out. But the condemnation and, let's say, the steam behind it, which was hurting the person. If you let go of that, so that, again, it's, it's not the, let's say, the thought form that's necessarily causing the suffering. It could be a perfectly sensible discrimination about life. We're not trying to throw that out. We're not trying to destroy the mind that way. But the relationship, once again, and so forth, it keeps going like that. Okay. Let's move to um, the area of the, the mind as a place where burning can take place. Because if you hear all of this, you can see that that's really what it's about. That is the, uh, the way in which the mind, um, which is endlessly trying to accumulate good feelings through the sense doors and not have bad feelings, we're doing that a great deal of the time. And the whole advertising industry is designed to help us get on with that job, just in case we don't know what, to, what will make us feel good. In case we're a little defective there, it helps us out <laughs> with lots of clues and suggestions. A very simple thing happened the other, uh, about three or four days into the retreat, or I think it was the end of the weekend for when we started. Someone came up who was, uh, uh, we had practiced together in Cambridge about six years ago, and I hadn't seen this person in that time. Um, she was uh, very um, involved in all kinds of wholesome activities, all kinds of uh, socially constructive uh, activities and had a very modest lifestyle, very dedicated to meditation, to, uh, to uh, anti-nuclear movement, to working with poor people, working with elderly people, and a lot of very socially useful activities and uh, came up and we had one interview and we talked and then uh, the person had to leave much earlier. Okay. I hope I gave you enough of the biography so you'll understand what happened. And so then at lunchtime, I'm just walking down the road and I hear a car in back of me and I just turn around and about to get off to the side of the road and I see that it's her driving the car. So I go up, I, I go to the road and of course she comes to a halt and then she screams out at me. This is a, a, a very large, brand new, shiny car. She screams out at me, this is not my car. <laughs> Do I have to say any more? Okay. In that moment, her mind was just caught fire. It was just really a flame, and there was re- she was really. And um, I found myself in the position of coming with a big smile, high there, and finding myself a source of torment to her, because I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and I borrowed this car. It's not my car. You know. Of course, all I could do was laugh. I mean, I didn't really. It didn't mean anything to me. It wasn't. It was just, you know, at that point I started to really look at the car. (laughs) So it didn't fit, let's say, the image of this person as a modest, unassuming, etc., etc., a a good good person. Um, And these identifications with the car, you know, we all do things like that, and the language even gives it away, you know, my... uh, my brakes just went out. I'm out of gas. Um, <laughs> you mean your car is out of gas? You mean the car's brakes just went out? Yeah, that's what I meant. I mean, the identification can be so thorough. And of course, the cars do have symbolic value. We know that each car is a message about the driver. <laughs> okay. Hopefully you're in the car that you want so that 
you don't, you don't run into people on the road and then have to avoid them like the plague. You know. okay. But what it points to is um, what happened there. Is that is why did her mind catch fire that way? And of course, I'm I'm using that situation. I don't actually know, but you know, to some degree, let's say we can use it as a teaching situation. There was an image that the person had of themselves as being such and such kind of person. That is the kind that, that was just described. And then the eye takes possession of it. This is me. Now, these images are very different from self-knowledge. Our practice is about self-knowledge. But a lot of what's going on in our, on in our mind is about, about images, self-images, which are they're actually polar opposites. The preoccupation with self-images prevents self-knowledge. In fact, often it's quite intentional. We don't want to know certain things. And so we have these conclusions that we make, kind of uh, idealized simplifications, also very negative ones. They're not just wonderful ones, but we have images that are awful about ourselves. And these images, uh, let's say the very positive ones, uh, we want them because we think they'll give us security. If we can't hold on to things in the outside, at least inwardly, there's something we can create. The mind makes it up. The mind makes up something that it thinks is wonderful and then it grasps onto it and then it feels good about itself. I mean, it's, do, it's a one-act play, you know, one-person performance. It's doing the whole thing. And it thinks that everyone else thinks that they're wonderful because we think we are this way. And the image can include can be quite dramatic with how we look and how we dress and what kind of car we drive and so forth. These images which are designed to give us security are very brittle. They're easily shattered. We just saw what happened, let's say, uh, using that, uh, that example. Um, all that has to happen is somebody come and, and the inconsistency of, of a person's image um, and the events of that moment produce real suffering, unnecessary suffering, because and that's the problem with the images. They're so vulnerable. We're always on the line, protecting them, refurbishing them, maintaining them, patching them up. And then when they are used up, we get new ones. But it's the same process going on endlessly. So these images, which we tend to represent as being me to ourselves and to others, cause suffering, attachment to these images, and the mind is aflame. Now, the practice of Vipassana meditation is to see this. It's not to banish uh, these images or the fact that the I arises quite often and takes possession of all kinds of things, but certainly things in the mind. This is me. I'm a plain, ordinary, unassuming person. And then suddenly that's jolted and it's shattered in pieces. And the person is really unhappy, suffering because of that. The practice of awareness is seeing the arising and passing away of these images. It's seeing the arising and passing away of the way in which I takes possession of these thoughts and concepts and images. Maintaining that this is I or mine. It's a peaceful coexistence. What Karada was getting at in the notion of friendliness. It's, we can't stop the process. The process is uh, like secretions like digestive juices. They, these images are just secreted. We can't control them. They come up. But what we can do is learn to be there as they do with awareness. And when the awareness is there and it accompanies the, the, the birth of the I in that moment, then there needn't be suffering. But when there's no awareness, then we're in for problems a good deal of the time because we're endlessly comparing ourselves And we all suffer in different ways, depending on what it is we think we are. She was suffering the suffering of being a plain, wholesome person. And someone else might be suffering the suffering of being this person or that person. It doesn't really matter. Okay. Um, Self-knowledge, which is what a very strong aspect of what we're doing, has to do with seeing the way things are, not just these idealized versions that are meant to stand for us, 
to represent us to ourselves and to the world, but from moment to moment to just see the actuality of what turns up, independent of what it is. It's a commitment to embracing, to being open to whatever shows up. Whatever comes up is welcome. Whatever. Okay, so that's very different than clinging to self-images. Okay, so that's another instance of getting attached, catching fire, and so forth. Um, maybe that's enough in terms of that kind of example. Let's get back to how we ended off uh, the last meeting and then what I'd like to do is after refreshing your memory uh, perhaps we can open it up and all of us discuss this. If any of you have seen some of this at work right here. What, what we're talking about is wisdom in action, which is extraordinarily important. And as we move closer to leaving the retreat, the degree to which you can make this your own, this wisdom in action, uh, is the degree to which you won't experience this practice as something that you can only do under special conditions. If you could understand that since we have the potential of being foolish anywhere and everywhere, does everyone agree with that? (laughs) We have an unlimited capacity to be fools wherever we are. That means we also have an unlimited capacity to be wise, to wise up, because the other side of all this foolishness is wisdom. Whenever we do something wrong, if we could see that, whether it's wisdom on, let's say, an ordinary level of touching fire and getting burned and so not doing that again, or wisdom on uh, levels having to do with spiritual development. So the attitude is extraordinarily important. And wisdom in action, this uh, approach, which is not something I'm making up, the Vipassana is intended to be practiced all the time, from the moment we wake up until we go to sleep. Sometimes, and this is what I'm trying to protect against as we move closer to leaving, the sitting gets featured. The sitting is obviously the star, isn't it so? I mean, you know, we have a special room to do it. We have a special image about it. You go to museums and you don't see the Buddha vacuuming. (laughs) You just don't. He's always sitting. Now and then he stands. I think there are a few where maybe he's walking. Not much, but it's mainly sitting. And the sitting practice is very powerful and very beautiful, you know, It's it's something or other. Anyway, we do it, don't we? Um, And if we get uh, attached to that, then that's another form of suffering. And we will uh, actually go into flames around meditation, which is designed to cool it all out, to extinguish the fires, the fires of attachment. Because when we can't have our intensive practice, when we can't have our, our stillness, when we can't have our special meditation center, monastery, special little room, mountain retreat, woods, little, nice little cozy little area near a cove with birds chirping, with only quiet vegetarian people around, when we can't have these, then we're thrown into desperation in that dirty, noisy world of all these meat eaters and you know, all these barbarians. <laughs> with their cigarettes and their loud speech and, you know, they don't wear Birkenstocks out there. (laughs) They stomp around in whatever they want to wear. And so if we we make a world of meditators and non-meditators, we're going to have the suffering of meditators. We'll just go up in flames as meditators. This is too noisy for me. These people are just too noisy and too dirty and too loud. And the blood from their meat, it's dripping down their face. <laughs> They're even crawling on all fours. You know. okay. So we have a new kind of very rarefied suffering, a new way to, 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 to catch fire. Wisdom in action, uh, that perspective is understanding that meditation is a way of life. It is not limited to any place or time. It has to do with where we are and wherever we are is a perfect place to learn, to, to be mindful and to accompany that mindfulness with some wisdom, to be interested, sensitive, to be willing 
to open up and to learn from what's happening to us in the various factories, family situations, offices, kitchens. You tell me. Okay, so now, if you begin to cultivate that perspective, which is what I was encouraging you to do yesterday and today, you'll see that there, in addition to, let's say, the very obvious forms of suffering, when someone we've been involved with for a long time leaves us, or we leave them, or someone dies, obvious forms of suffering. And we all know that. But what I would like to, to stress tonight are these very small sufferings, little ones, and the small liberations that are possible if we can bring the practice into the moment as we live our, out our life. For example, just the incident in the car or what was mentioned the other day about the suffering that came about when that person who was being cooled by the fan and then somebody sat in front of them cutting off the, the breeze. Or when you go into the dining room and someone's sitting in your chair or someone has your walking lane not letting you walk in your lane. You've had it for four days in a row and suddenly maybe someone new pulls into town. You know, they just <laughs> came on the retreat. A, a, a newcomer. A strange newcomer in town. And there they are and you're not only in your walking lane but sitting in your chair in the dining room. <laughs> okay. Okay. So there's ample opportunity for awareness to be with what's happening and to learn the art of experiencing the attachment, the um, aversion, or holding on or pushing away. And with practice, learning how to allow that to run its course. And so there is a, the small liberations. It can be really tiny ones. Okay. Um, Part of the problem when we find ourselves in these situations is is that so many of the attachments or when we're on flame, inflamed, to continue that image, is we don't like it. We don't want to pay attention to that. We want to say goodbye to it. We wish it weren't there. We just hate being bored. We hate, how many more, I don't want to feel frightened. I just hate feeling fear. I just don't want to feel irritated anymore. I don't want to feel that physical pain in my back. It's the third sitting in a row. I just don't want it to be there. I don't want those people to be the way they are. And we want to say goodbye. But it seems to be a law in the universe. You have to say hello before you can say goodbye. And that's what we're learning. We're learning how to say hello. We're learning how to open up to what's there in the moment. And in the process of doing that, we can say goodbye. But we can't skip that first step, no matter how much our mind wants to. And it wants to very, very much. One person here, very courageously, uh, had a lot of anxiety and depression for days on this retreat. And many temptations to leave. And just stayed with it, stayed with it, stayed with it. And worked with all the reactions to it and worked with the anxiety and the depression itself. It went. And of course, when we do that, even once, there's a certain dignity that we give ourselves. You know, the noble truth of suffering. You might say, well, I don't see particularly what's so noble about suffering. It's uh, no big deal. You know, we're all doing it. It seems to be pretty easy to come by. What's so noble about it? Well, of course, on one level, nobility means penetrating into it, seeing what it is as a profound truth in the universe and using that to go beyond it. There's a certain nobility that comes to each one of us, a certain respect, kind of a genuine respect, that I don't think anyone can give to us. No lover or husband or therapist, the Buddha, Jesus, no one can give it to us. And that comes from facing yourself exactly as you are, just like that person did for two or three days, just little by little learning how to work with that and seeing that it's workable. It's a very wonderful step in the practice when you realize that, granted, who wants this? Who wants to feel anxious for hour after hour? None of us in this room. 
But instead of panicking all the time, or instead of taking extreme measures to kind of try to annihilate what's happening, or to, take, to get absorbed in anything else, to escape, to blame something, instead to stay there and to turn towards it and to see that it's workable. It's all right. It's workable. So, all of these little situations give us opportunities to practice. So when you find... Uh, okay, this is what I'd like to um, go to next, and then I think we can open, open up and see what's been happening to you here. There is a tremendous concern with letting go. And I don't know if you can feel the beauty of letting go. Often it's a cliche. You know, you hear it so much in Buddhist circles or maybe in all spiritual circles that it sounds good and we even use it ourselves. Just let go, letting go, let go. What are, what are we really talking about? And often when you get down, as Corrado pointed out very deeply, we're not so sure we want to let go. So what are we going to be getting instead? Maybe that's all we have, you know, these pleasures, these little guy pleasures. And the letting go sounds uh, fanciful, perhaps. Okay, for the moment, let's then leave that. If we have become preoccupied with letting go, it can become blur certain things. I've seen very often in myself and in other people, because it's become an ideal, that a lot of what's called letting go is not really letting go, but pushing away, repressing, denying, or as mentioned the last time, saying we're free of things that we don't even care about. We're not attached to them, so we haven't really let go of anything. They're not there. They're not holding on. Instead of being in a hurry to let go, I think step number one is become more and more of an expert on attachment, is to really begin to understand just what does it mean to be attached? Because maybe it's great to be attached. Why not? Maybe that's when we feel most alive, and often that's so. When we're tremendously angry. Yeah, I was angry, but boy, I was really alive. I was real. Have you ever heard that one? <laughs> After the smoke clears and the, the corpses are counted? <laughs> or, the other, or the other way, when we think we're, we're really in love. You know, ferocious, really, it feels with an incredible attachment. You know, calling the person up 20 times a day and 15 letters in a week and, you know, just, you know, the kinds of uh, poetry that it can produce. And <laughs> it's embarrassing. You know. okay. 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 Supposing we could just slow down a bit and begin to take a look at just what is attachment so we can find out for ourselves Maybe the Buddha was right. And begin to see what happens when we hold on. Is it true that this is not such a good way to live? For example, if you're in a relationship, is possessiveness, which characterizes so, is true for so many of us when we're in a relationship, is that really giving us a lot of fun? Is it a lot of fun to be possessive? Do you, do you enjoy it? Holding on for dear life to the other person, watching their every move, you know, seeing every signal of rejection or acceptance, and where are you going? Why are you going? What are you going? What's this about? Why are you going? I saw you with someone. Who is that person? How long are you going to be away? Uh, it's a horrible way to live. Hey, but sometimes, perhaps we've been very lonely and have not been any re- in, in any relationship at all. And so let's say relative to that, suddenly we connect with someone and the attachment can be ferocious. And we might mistake that for happiness relative to where we have been. That seems to be one pattern for all of us. But soon that levels out as the honeymoon ends and then we find what it's like to be with a person. And attachment and possessiveness uh, perhaps don't add to love for example, uh, what was mentioned a few talks ago, uh, if you recall, was that if there's attachment, when, even when there's, let's say, p- very pleasant feelings, that puts a little bit of uh, constriction in it. It isn't fully as enjoyable. So we're holding on to something that's good and it's less enjoyable because that little bit of constriction is marring it. When we can fully let go 
and just love, just be affectionate, just enjoy, let's say, the other person, uh, it seems to be superior. And it's extremely difficult to do because we're terrified to do it. Let me suggest one um, model of perhaps how to begin to explore and work and then, you know, we're all on our own. We have to do this ourselves. But it is possible. A growing number of people who are doing this practice are doing something like what I'm going to suggest. Let's say you're involved in a relationship and you find that you do have strong attachments and you are possessive and you are insecure and that you do put these kinds of limitations on your partner. And you've heard all about letting go. And I think rightfully so, you start to feel it's fanciful. You know, what are they talking about in all these meditation centers? I haven't seen a couple yet who are, who are free. Everyone is attached. That's what being in a relationship is, isn't it? Who would want to be in a relationship if you weren't attached? Okay, now I'm not speaking in absolutes now, but just as humble people who find that we are attached and if we take a look at it, we examine the attachment, perhaps we will see that for ourselves, not theoretically, but actually see how it is hard on us. It's not such a a useful way to live. Now, step number one might be just be seeing it for for ourselves. Just being able to notice how much we, how possessive we are. Just that step. You haven't even shared it with anyone, but just can you see it? Can you fully experience the price that's paid to you by having that stance towards life? Step number two might again, through, through awareness, through examination, might mean uh, then a giant step for many of us, particularly for men, very difficult. Then put it into words and share it, let's say, with your partner. Describe, you know, that, look, I'm very possessive and these kinds of things just upset me a lot. And when you did that, I thought this. And I don't know if you're even trying to get the, the other person to change in any way, but you're at least alerting them or to get yourself, you're not making necessarily even making promises that you're going to change, but you're at least alerting the other person to the impact they have on you. And if you're a meditator, perhaps that you are motivated to move through this. So the first is, let's say, recognizing it yourself and then beginning to learn how to communicate about it with the other person. And then if we're fortunate either alone, but even better when, let's say, two people can work together. An agreement, if, there, if it comes out of real understanding, not as an ideology or the latest theory as to how couples should be, but rather concretely from our own meditation experience, understanding the laws of cause and effect and seeing that this application of the Buddhist teaching in a relationship has some truth to it. And making that very much a part of the practice, no less valuable than, than sitting, intensive practice. If you're going to spend so much time in relationship, it seems clear that we have to use relationship as part of the practice. Otherwise, what happens is that split, where we botch it up in relationship and then run to the retreats to heal up. And then we feel great, and then we go out and get into another relationship, botch that one up, and then go on a retreat again. So I haven't even mentioned letting go. But let's say out of that, out of careful understanding of our actual condition as ordinary human beings who seem to have this tendency to grab on, to begin to understand that and perhaps out of that can be, can be more space. The beginnings of letting go. Small, le- small letting go. In little instances here and there. It can be done. People are doing it. It's an important part of my own practice. And other people, more and more, are understanding that meditation isn't limited to just to the sitting practice or formal practices like walking. That wherever we are, if we can develop that capacity to stay awake and alert, and it's mainly an attitude question, you have to really be convinced that it's valuable. You have to learn that it is. Okay. Uh, if you remember, and then finally, by the way, we have more time tonight, so we're probably going to go through the walking period and we'll have a discussion as long as it's useful for us. 
you remember the symmetry of this kind of re-education is uh, getting to know attachment really well and what the consequences of that are so that you really feel it, what it means to be attached. And also, in those moments when we do let go and we feel a relief, oh, you know, putting the burden down, feel that relief, even if it's just a few seconds, it's very important for mindfulness to be active then too, for the knowing to be working during the attachment, and if there should be a letting go and relief, for the knowing to work at that point as well. And then the mind can bring them both together and understand, I get it. When I do this, I get burned. When I take my hand out of the fire, I feel okay. And then it's a, a complete cycle. It's as if a learning cycle has been completed in the mind. And as we do that in very small ways, more and more, uh, this whole notion of attachment and letting go becomes not just a slogan or an ideology, but it becomes a, it's the core of the practice. It's the cutting edge of the practice. The attachment to I and mine is causing so much suffering. And the letting go is the letting go of that. Okay, so as we start to get ready uh, sometime tomorrow to leave, most of us, and you've already been doing some things here that are not that different from there, except that we're more protected here. And it's simpler. And that's why it's a good place to practice just being a normal person. Even here, you can do some... We do. Isn't daily life here too? Don't we have to go to the toilet here? Or has anyone figured out a way of getting around that? <laughs> okay. Why don't, what I'd like to do now is... Um, how many of you are, t- are tired of sitting? Because your body's hurting. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Because the rest have attachment to self-image as a good yogi. (laughs) If you don't mind, or if you you don't want to, of course, don't. But stand up and stretch, and then we can uh, start talking. I'd like to hear what's been happening to you. Want to learn anything about some of the things that have been stimulated by the fire sermon? You got, you got to it late. Yeah. And there, there was, uh, there was uh, no pudding. Oh. Oh. <laughs> no. No, the rest of the story. Right. Well, what happened? Um, what did you do? See, that's what we're interested in. Well, I, I was hearing your, your words in my head. Yeah. And I remember it right away. It was just an experience. And uh, I went and started scraping. <laughs> <laughs> The dredges, huh? And I looked around, and there was this guy I'd never seen before in the other wall, scraping that out. <laughs> now, I, I, I made all sorts of assumptions. First of all, who is this guy, this newcomer? Right. Taking the pudding. He doesn't know that I haven't had it yet. Right. He assumes that I'm having seconds. Right. Uh, I assumed that he'd already had some, right? So I made all these great assumptions. And it was just amazing to watch it. And so I went outside, and it took me three or four minutes to put the fire out. Okay, so take us through that in even more detail. It's small, but it's yeah. real active. Yeah. Where did you feel the fire? Was it in your body as well as your mind? Do you remember? Yeah. Breathing. Mm-hmm. Uh, historical things came up too. Aside with the present state, mm-hmm. the present drama, there was some historical things that came up front and joined it. And it was a lot of it was a lot of churning for a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Okay, now and then you brought mindfulness to it, mm-hmm. and then what happened? Actually, I brought it to it pretty straight away. Mm-hmm, good. So it was it was a great process. From, you know, I wasn't you know, I didn't throw anything at the guy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> for all the years. And did you feel the release? Were you able to stay with the release as well? Or was when it when you saw when it ran its course? Yeah. Okay. Hopefully, that will make it harder to get caught so easily in the future. In other words, if we do these things over and over, it's like anything else. If we practice this, it gets stronger. 
our capacity to, our reflexes become quicker. We see through it more quickly and we're able to, let, to genuinely let go. And it comes out of a full experience of the situation. Mm-hmm. It's a real honest letting go. It's not this stuff. And one thing that I did that really helped me was, which I do a lot in my, in my work, because my work, well, you know about that, mm-hmm. is almost before I got caught up into it, I, br- I breathed. Because I noticed mm-hmm. my breathing was short immediately. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I just immediately breathed. <laughs> like you say, remember to breathe. Mm-hmm. And that really... That continuum then ensued, and I was able to watch the whole drama. Right. Good. That's exactly it. Anyone else find, do any find anything? Yes, please. You're gonna have to speak a little louder. Who won? Okay. He got, he got enough what? Blood. Yeah. He was like a real mess. Are you trying to imply he died happy? <laughs> like those happy cows that, you know, that provide us with hamburgers as they big smiles on their face. Now, is there suffering in that moment? No, at that point, no. But I was saying, I was very, very to land. <laughs> and I could land for a very long time, and I wasn't squatting with Adam. And I felt great. I thought, well, okay, we're just dancing together. So finally, it did land. And uh, it wasn't unpleasant at all. In fact, it was very pleasant. <laughs> 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 it was tickling my, my hand. I know they're all on me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Anyone else? Please. Well, this one's come up for me about a billion times, and it's played itself out differently each one. But I get to a point where, you know, some part of my body is always hurting, and so I'm thinking, well, if I sit, um, this part's going to hurt, and if I walk, that part's going to hurt, and if I do this, that part, you know, it's just like there's no place to go. So the bell will ring, and it's time to change position, and I have to decide which one to change to. <laughs> I know, none of them is going to be good. So, um, there have been times, especially more at the beginning of the retreat, where, I mean, I would just go off on it. It's just like, oh, God, I'm so sick of this. I can't stand it. You know, I have to really want to leave here because at home I know that there's like, I could go swimming, you know, that would feel better, you know, anything but this, you know, it's Barry doing it to me, but I'm a chain at home on for a long time. And I think as the retreat's going on, there's been more and more times where that would come up. Today it happened, um, I was doing something that was physically painful a little bit, and I thought, I just can't stand it anymore. I've got to change positions, and I knew at that point too. You know, it wasn't horrendous pain and there was nothing else to do. And I just thought, well, you know, I guess that's the way the body's going these days. Mm-hmm. And I just, uh, oh, nothing I can do about it. And I kind of moved on to the next moment. And there wasn't really any residue of that. So did it ease when you when you were able to do that? Well, the pain was still there, but I just... Right. I just wasn't fighting it anymore. Exactly. You know, this is not some... What is being described is not some kind of Hollywood thing. That is... That's real. You had real pain and you were, in a sense, trapped. No matter which posture you wanted to go to, there was no remedy. And it's also, I mean, it was valid. I realized that it's okay. Like, I take a moment now before each change to think, well, what would be the best thing for me right now? Mm-hmm. You know, so I do have to make a decision, but once I make the decision, as the retreat's gone on, it's been more and more.
Right. Okay, let's say that um, there is no option, that you find that each posture is just as bad as the other one. Um, you know, I, I'm trying to make it, uh, it's, a, it's, not a, it's a, a bad example, but I'm doing it for a reason. And sometimes we are, that's what happens to us in life. That we're in a situation that there's no remedy for it. And yet the mind will go over or over and over and over again. But there can, it's not to deny the pain of what you're undergoing. But then on top of that is the mind's basic wish that there was a remedy. Now, if there really isn't, you know, I'm assuming that, if there really isn't, then being able to see that then diminishes the suffering. And you still have the pain. No one's, I'm not, that's what I mean, it's not a Hollywood movie. The pain is there, but now what we're doing is we're getting comfortable with all of the reactions to it. Contraction, wishful thinking, despair, self-pity. We understand, well, this is the way things are. And so that side of it can at least dissolve. That, That part is not on fire. And then you're working objectively with what you have to deal with. Whereas when the mind doesn't come to to see things that way, then it's even worse. Does that make any sense? And we're in those situations a lot. You know, we find ourselves in situations which we're not about to take ourselves out of for one reason or another. And yet the mind is doing a lot of, t- of stirring and going around as if it could do this, it would do that, and maybe it'll do that, and why didn't I do that? But it's not. It's right there and it's going to be there. Sometimes just seeing that, oh, all right, I'm in the rush hour and people are standing on my head, but there's no, I, this is it. It's hot. There's no air. But there is no way out. And so then it's still hot and there's no air. But then you let go of the, sort of in a sense, the irrational part of it, which just wants things to be perfect all the time. And that, that eases it a bit. Okay. Anyone else have any? Yes. Someone in the shower uses up all my hot water. They use up all your hot water? And so what happens to your mind? So the suffering was you waiting to go into the shower? <laughs> That's what I call preparing for something. Yeah. Okay, so so there was some some suffering because of all of this in the mind. Tell me what happened and how did you work with it? Um, well, it actually, it wasn't too much um, awareness. Well, there was maybe awareness, but it didn't take too long. I just realized uh, that they weren't going to use up all the water and that this wasn't, wasn't, wasn't fine with me to feel that way. And the awareness, I just saw the Yeah, just. Well, that's another. That's another uh, application of wisdom. That is, you were able to see the situation and describe it to yourself, and that eased it for you. But what I'm, but what I'm getting at, were if you could remember, see, you were suffering. Let's say you created a world where this person was going to take your hot, your your shower water away. Okay, at that moment, if the awareness could be with that, with that whatever it was then that could ease it for you, independent of whatever else you do to help yourself. So that's the, the uh, quickness that's important, is to learn how to, to really be there as it happens. Okay. Did anyone learn anything about attachment? Is attachment really, as they say, suffering? Yeah. I felt like I was a forest fire. You were a forest fire? <laughs> what happened? So, um, 
Did it eventually pass? (laughs) In that situation, it's very helpful uh, to stay in touch with the feelings, the unpleasant feelings, and to really experience them also, in all of these really, is to notice if selfing is happening. That is, if the I gets into it. That is, grant that something's happening to each one of us in these And then it it makes it into, I'm not having my pudding. Then you have a real problem. And so, uh, quite related to what this is all about, is is to more and more be able to see the way in which selfing happens. The way in which that I enters into the situation and claims it as being mine. This is me and this is mine. And if awareness accompanies the arisal or the birth of of the I and the mine, there's either no suffering or very little. If there's no awareness, then that is really controlling the situation a great deal because we're taking it incredibly personally. I mean, this, that's the suffering that we do so much is this self-centeredness in every, everything that's, so many things that are happening to us. Fortunately, not everything. We have our moments when we let it go. Yeah. That's, that's real true for me because... Um the moment I realized there was no pudding, it was like, well, there's, there's no pudding. But then I turned around and I saw this guy. That, that, then I started taking it personally. Well, mm-hmm. isn't, he, isn't he aware that I didn't get any? And, right. And all these things. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and you, yeah, that's, uh, I saw that in action today. Okay, the, in, in the sutra, the Buddha, if you remember, says that birth is suffering. Does some of you remember that? He said, birth is suffering. And on one level, that means the physical act of being born is painful. There's another meaning of it, an inner meaning, a uh, more subtle meaning, let's say. Uh, what, they, what the Buddha is talking about is the birth of the eye. From every time the eye is born, there's suffering. And the eye is born and dies many, many times during a day. And there are also periods of time when there's no, the eye is in abeyance. And those, those are often our happiest times. One of which we get almost every night when we go to sleep. Not the dream part, because the eye is going crazy there often. It's still I, just without a body. But we get into periods of dreamless sleep where there's no thinking, which means there's no thought I. And if there's no thought I, thanks to the benevolence of Mother Nature, there's no suffering. At least we have a few hours a night when there's, the eye is laid to rest and there's no suffering. And then if dreams start in, it starts all over again. And so... We're, that's part of what's being said here because that, that's what gets inflamed so much. So can we begin to see this process at work right in life itself, in the ordinary situations and conditions that, that make up our life? That's what I would encourage you to, to, to see as a very important part of your practice. <coughs> Anyone else before we take a break? Yeah. Um, I'm sometimes attached to non-attachment, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, today I experienced a very unusual feeling, which was joy. Uh, I mean, I know what happiness is, but, but this was joy. I don't even, I can't even recall experiencing yeah. it before. Um, and right away, I started saying to myself, D- "Don't get attached to this, um, because then it's going to leave, and you're going to feel out, you know, feel bad." Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so, um, I mean, I was controlling the situation because yes. I, I said in my mind, don't get attached to this, don't get attached to this. So I wasn't able to really be with the joy. That's right. I was, I was attached to the non-attachment. Well, the words about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, the words about... Um, And I do that sometimes when, when I'm enjoying myself. I just kind of, you know, it's, it's not a very kind way to be. It's don't enjoy this too much because then it'll go and, and you'll be disappointed. Um, I think what I, what I you know, if, if I could just say, don't get attached to it, if I could say it in a loving way, maybe. It's not, you don't have to forget, I think um, it can be helpful sometimes to say the saying, but the main thing is not saying. Yeah. It's seeing. There was a, uh, I don't remember this exactly, but there was a, a, a Zen exchange where, um, and if any of you remember the exact one, help me out, uh, where a Zen monk comes into uh, to the Zen master and says, uh, um, everything's dropped away. And so then the teacher says, well, drop that too. And he says, no, you don't understand. Everything is dropped away. So then he says, okay, if you insist, carry it around. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, why don't we end on that note? Can we have a moment's silence, please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.